Welcome to the podcast of Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more information about our church and for more messages, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Over the last few sermons, we have peered into the glory of the incarnation, of God becoming man, the the great mystery of the divine breaking into human history in the person of Jesus. We've seen that, that Jesus is God. He is the light. He is the word. And each one of these has been a magnificent truth that, that Pastor Tim and Pastor Joss have, have proclaimed so well. And these have formed a really a soul-stirring prologue, increasing our anticipation for when the Savior of the world finally arrives on the scene. And in our passage today, John the Baptist has the, the monumental task of introducing Jesus to the world. Imagine the nerves that he has as he, as he steps up to the plate. But we don't want the focus to be on John. And he doesn't want that Either He wants our focus to be firmly on Jesus. We're going to see how in our passage today he fades into the background to shine the spotlight brightly on the Savior. And my hope this morning is that this message will revitalize our awe of our Savior, that it will produce in us humility at his greatness and exhort us to be bold witnesses of Christ. So with that, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verse 19. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but let me read it for us. John chapter 1, starting at verse 19. I don't think the the words will be projected on the slide today. John chapter 1, starting at 19. Hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the inerrant and authoritative word of God. We're going to see in our passage today that John invites us to see three things about Christ. To behold the anointed of God, behold the Lamb of God, and behold the Son of God. So let's begin with the first point. Behold the anointed of God. So as we just read, John begins his witness by stating three times who he is not. You know, the Jewish religious leaders, they're asking him, who are you? You He was no doubt having great influence by his uh, itinerant preaching ministry. He confesses in verse 20 that he is not the Christ. He is not God's anointed one, the Messiah. He knows, he knows that the Jewish people have been waiting for a Messiah for a long time. You know, they were looking out for a, for a mighty king from the line of David to, to overthrow the Romans. Or they were looking for a great priest like Aaron or Melchizedek or a prophet like Moses. But it's not John. John is not the Christ. He is not Elijah. He is not a prophet. So it begs the question, so, so John, who, who are you? But John is, is less interested in explaining who he is than what he does. He tells us in verse 23. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John wanted to make absolutely clear that he is not the center of attention. And this is what we saw a couple weeks ago in verse 8. He says, he was not the light, talking about John, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, in quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3 here, John situates himself in the redemptive work of God. He he knows, like the Jews, that God will bring salvation to his people. Through his chosen one, he will rescue them again from their moral wilderness, their spiritual poverty. John's role is simply to be an announcer. Listen to what Craig Keener says about this. John is the herald, the herald of a new exodus, announcing that God is about to redeem his people from captivity, as he had in the days of Moses. He's the herald of a new exodus. Notice here that John's quotation, it gives no prominence to the speaker. John knows his rightful place. He is is not important. He is merely a voice to speak of greater things to come. Imagine an an MC at a wedding welcoming the the newly married couple back into the venue. You know, they're coming down this aisle. Now imagine how inappropriate it would be if he or she just starts talking about himself. You know, how his week went, how great his jokes were. You know, we would, we would all gasp in, in horror or, or scoff at, at disgust. You know, what are, what are you doing? 
The moon has no place talking about its brightness in light of the sun. So John also humbly performs the role that he has been given. Amidst a spiritually dry place, his voice rings out, be ready for the Lord to appear. Repent from your wickedness. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Take your eyes off me and look for God's chosen deliverer. Now, the Jewish leaders, they're they're not satisfied with with John's answer here. You know, they're saying, John, if if you're a nobody, why do you baptize? How can you perform such an official act if you have no status? But John, he, he evades the question again. And, and, you know, the priests and Levites at this point, they must be so annoyed. He's never giving them a straight answer. John chooses to take the focus off of his baptism. The topic of, of baptism, it, it fades away in light of the chosen one's arrival on the scene. You know, he's saying, you know, guys, you're, you're missing the point. The one you have waited for is walking among you. You are in the presence of greatness, but your hard hearts and your blind eyes are unwilling to receive him. Now, the chasm in greatness between the chosen one and John is shown by his humble declaration in verse 27. What we see is that John considers himself unworthy to even untie his sandals. You know, during this time, slaves, they were not, they were not treated very well. But the one action that they never had to do was take off their master's sandals. And yet John sees himself unfit to even do this for Jesus. He he reversed a social norm to to magnify the greatness of Christ. Listen to to what Edward Klink says. He says the sum of it is that he wants to abase himself, to bring himself low, abase himself as much as he can lest any degree of honor wrongly given to him should obscure, should block the superiority of Christ. In preparing the way of the Lord, John needed to get himself out of the picture. You know, isn't this instructive to us as as Christians? You know, I'm sure none of us would ever say, you know, I'm greater than Jesus. But isn't it easy to act and think like we really are? You know, to think I am indispensable to the mission of God. God needs me to reach these people. To, to preach Christ out of, out of rivalry and conceit like Paul's opponents in Philippi. Um, considering our interests above the interests of Christ. And admiring the, the clarity with which we can explain theology or, or our eloquence in sharing the gospel. What a a rebuke this passage is to us when we think Jesus needs me to bear witness to him. But instead, God shows us by by John's example the posture we take as self-proclaimed slaves of Christ. We are entirely and necessarily expendable. And how how that takes us down a notch Our only role is to to draw attention to the presence of one who is incomparably greater than us. To say, not me, but him. 
And this is what John does as we move to our second point. He wants us to behold the Lamb of God. But look with me first at verse 30. You know, John says, this is who I was talking about. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. You know, we saw this last week in, in verse 15. The one whom John bore witness about was now before him in the flesh. But this man is no mere man. As we've seen, he was with God and he is God. He is the one in whom there is life. He is the one from whom we receive grace upon grace or grace instead of grace as Pastor Josh showed us last week. John cannot even fully comprehend how true his statement is. And who is this preeminent God-man who steps into human history? How does John introduce him? As we see in verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this, this brings together so many threads of, of Scripture. And there's so much to unpack here and to enjoy together, but we have so little time. Now, to, to our modern ears, a man introduced as a lamb would, would at the very least be confusing. But the Jews, who, who they knew their Old Testament, they would have much context to draw from. You know, they were, they were familiar, unlike us, with the, with the Old Testament sacrificial system for sin. You know, the blood of animals was shed to restore one's standing with God. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But the image of the scapegoat would be particularly evocative. You know, the priest would, would lay his hand on the animal, and the guilt of the person would be transferred to the creature. And then this animal was released into the wilderness to proclaim the removal of guilt. But this was only a temporary measure. Offering endless animals could never fully take away sin. This is what we see in Hebrews 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animals could only stand in place of men for so long. This, this God-ordained system pointed to something greater, a final, once-for-all sacrifice. Enter the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what we remember at Advent, the arrival of a sin-bearing Savior. His first appearance in this story is as a lamb. And his life ends by being a Passover sacrifice. This is what we see in 1 John 1, verse 3 to, 1 John 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. The sacrifice has shifted from many endless lambs to a single lamb offered once. The lamb of God, the God-man who came to redeem his people by his blood. In Jesus, the father offered the son that he didn't ask for from Abraham. He offered the lamb that no shepherd ever could. Jesus is the suffering servant, the atoning sacrifice that takes away 
sin. He is the word, the revealer of God's plan of salvation. He is the light to shine into the darkness of men's corrupt souls. And he is the life who gives himself in the place of sinners. But not just for the one nation of Israel. He gives his life for all, all who would call on Jesus by faith, believing in his substitutionary death for their sins. For those who believe as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus takes away our sin and takes it upon himself. This is God's gift to us. His son dying in our place, raised for our justification that we can walk in newness of life. But oh, we cannot see or understand this glorious truth by ourselves. We would, we would just be like the Jewish people, the religious leaders. Jesus could be standing right among us and we wouldn't even recognize him. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 53. You know, we don't want to hear that we are in need of a savior, that we have fallen short. We naturally do not want to, to receive him, to, to believe in Jesus' name, to desire to be the children of God. We need the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual vision before we can see who Jesus is and what he has done. That's what we see in our final point. We need the Spirit to behold the Son of God. John says twice in, in verse 31 and 33 that he did, not who, he did not know who Jesus was. I myself did not know him. Now, in some sense, if we know our Bibles, you know, John did know who Jesus was. They were related. They would likely have spent time together as, as children or even as adults. But John was not aware of the significance of Jesus' person or his mission. Not until another witness, a, a greater witness, showed him who Jesus was. So look with me at verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. This would have happened at Jesus' baptism. But our author, John, he doesn't choose to focus on the details of this event. He wants us to join John the Baptist to simply be in awe of what he saw. The word saw here is the same word that we saw earlier in verse 14 that we heard about last week. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, it means to perceive beyond what is merely seen physically with the eyes, to be aware of divine realities. You know, we saw the person and work of Christ and perceived in them the divine glory. That's what we see in verse 14. And in verse 32... John is given deeper perception to see who Jesus truly is. And it was given to him by God himself. Look at verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, 
This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Do you see our triune God at work here? The Spirit revealing the Son at the command and pleasure of the Father. The Spirit infusing Jesus with power and revealing him to all. Only then does John recognize Jesus. Does he know him and is awestruck by who is in front of him? He sees that Jesus is the servant upon whom God puts his spirit in Isaiah 42. He sees that he is the one who can say from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. John witnessed a high point in redemptive history. And what a sight it must have been to behold. You know, those of us who need, who, who need glasses, you know, they, you know how blurry the world is without our prescribed lenses. And without supernatural sight, without spirit-given sight, it is impossible to see who Jesus is. When the spirit descended on Jesus, understanding dawned in John's mind. And when John sees this, what does he do? He finishes his witness by ascribing one more transcendent title to Jesus. Look with me at verse 34, our last verse for today. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Son who receives the Spirit, the one whom the Father loves and takes pleasure in the son through whom we enter God's family by adoption, by receiving life in the spirit. And life, as is later defined in John 17, life, eternal life, is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If you're not yet a Christian, this is what you need. You need the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see Jesus. You know, perhaps you've been going to your church all your life or, or for the last six months. But Jesus to you is no more than someone you should respect because your parents told you to. Maybe Jesus is someone whom you can come to when you're at the end, you're really at the end of your rope. You know, he's your, he's your ace in the hole. Or maybe Jesus is just the adorable baby in the nativity scene. Someone only worth a moment of your passing time. But as you heard this morning, he is so much more. He is the chosen son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now I can see how this might not be good news for you at first. You know, you're hearing that you need someone to take away your sin. You know, the presence of a higher standard over your life might, might chafe at your pride. You know, you might think, you know, I haven't done anything wrong to deserve punishment. Or perhaps you don't need yet another reminder of how often you fall short. You know, how disastrous your life has been and is currently. You are already painfully aware of your own imperfections. This isn't good news at all. But let me tell you, your, your sin, your rebellion against God, your ignorance of God is exactly why Jesus is good news. 
Oh, for you to see who Jesus truly is, that he has died to take away the penalty of your sin, the, the unending guilt that weighs heavily on your weary shoulders. He takes it away. He, he doesn't just erase it, leaving, leaving a permanent black um, smudge on the whiteboard. He doesn't turn a blind eye to your sin like a corrupt judge, but he takes it on himself. He died with the sin of the world on his shoulders. And he invites you, he invites you to find life in him, peace from a guilty conscience, and unquenchable joy in being a child of God. Come to him. Turn from your pride. Turn from your self-sufficiency. Receive the gift, the free gift of salvation in Jesus. May God have mercy on you today. May he, by his spirit, give you spiritual sight to see Jesus and faith to believe in what he has done. And now for my brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have already been saved by the grace of God, two points of application for us. First, remind and reaffirm one another of this precious gospel truth. Jesus has taken away all our sin. Jesus has taken away all our sin. All of it. You know, as as the song goes, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all, washed all my sin away. There are few aspects of the gospel that need greater or frequent reminder. You know, how many of us struggle beneath crushing burdens of guilt, plagued by the shame of our repeated failing? But Christ, the Lamb of God, has borne it all for us. He says to each one of us today and and tomorrow and until he brings us home, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And our God says in Hebrews 10, 17, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And listen also to the comforting words of Bruce Milne. What a balm this is to our our soul. There is no sin too heinous, no wickedness too terrible, no habitual failure too often repeated, aren't there so many of those, that it could not be taken away by Christ. In other words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when your brother is convicted again by his sin of anxiety, remind him of his sin against God, but don't don't leave him there. Comfort him with the truth. Jesus has paid for all your sin. When your sister is is overwhelmed again by how often she envies others, remind her of her need to repent, but don't leave her hanging. Comfort her with the truth. The Lamb of God, your Savior, has taken away all your sin. All of it. Build one another up with this precious truth. And lastly, be a humble but bold witness of Christ. This is the example John leaves us. Listen to Edward Clink again. 
He says, John is the normative image of the Christian preacher, apostle, and missionary, the perfect prototype of the true evangelist whose one goal is self-effacement before Christ, not claiming attention for ourselves before Christ. As we live our blood-bought lives testifying to the grace of God, wherever we are, we fade into the background. Christ must be the center. You know, I remember one incident in, in, in Asia where I was sharing the gospel, but, but I share this story really to, to my shame. You know, my language ability was good enough at this point where I could converse freely with the locals. And I just spent two hours um, having spiritual conversations with three uh, second-year English students. You know, I shared the gospel with them and I answered many of their questions. But as I walked away from them, only one thought rose to the surface. Wow, Tim, and you were so great back there. I wasn't thinking, thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering me for witness. You know, I wasn't thinking, the gospel, Jesus is the power to save, not me in my hard-earned abilities. In that instance and many others, I had put myself at the center. I had lost sight of being an unworthy servant, an unworthy herald of the gospel of free grace. Jesus had become a message to bolster my own self-image. And how easy it is for us to place ourselves in the center, even when testifying to the greatness of our Savior. Even in sharing evidences of grace, testimony of God's goodness in our lives, we can silently take the credit for what is due to God. We need to adopt the posture of John. I must decrease and he must increase. As we testify to who we have seen and heard, our posture must be one of humility. And Nicholas Zinzendorf captures this well. If you read Living Life Backwards, this is the quote in the first chapter, and we've heard this before. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Our lives are but a breath, a vapor in the wind, but the one who has given us life, his glory will forever be on display for the nations to see. Let us expend our lives with all our spirit-empowered energy to point others to the Lamb who was slain, to say, not me, but him. Let's pray together. Father, we declare worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We, Father, we join the host of heaven to praise your son. Empower us by your spirit to be your witnesses, to lift high the name of Jesus. Not to us, not to us be the glory, but to you be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness in Christ. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.